You are listening to the Draper Fisher Jurvetson Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar, brought to you weekly by Stanford Technology Ventures Program at Stanford University School of Engineering. Gil started out just like many of you. Only a few years ago, he was an industrial engineer major in college, and after school, he ended up going to, I want to make sure I've got everything right, to General Electric, and then went off to eBay. So we're going to sit down and uh, hear a lot about his story and the insights that he will share with you. So, Gil, come join me. So the way this is going to work is um, I'm going to interview Gil, but I certainly am going to leave at least 20 minutes at the end for questions for you. So please make sure to save up your questions, and we will definitely have time to answer them. So let me ask you a question to start out. When you were studying industrial engineering in school, did you have any idea that you would be doing now, doing what you're doing now, this many years later? I don't think I knew what the internet was. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I was starting school, we, we had email, but uh, the internet was really was probably DARPAnet back then. So um, I knew I did want to eventually try to run a small business, and and industrial engineering was sort of a good combination of engineering and business, very much like some of the Stanford programs here. So it, it felt like a good way to to get both a technical background and some business skills, but certainly didn't know I'd be you know working in an auction company or doing startups out in Silicon Valley. Now, it's interesting. We were talking beforehand that when you mm-hmm. went to eBay, people who you talked to said, E, what? what? What are you doing? Why are you going to a company that sells Beanie Babies? So what attracted you to the company in the first place? Uh, did you have this vision of where the company was going? Uh, yeah, so I, I joined eBay in 98. Uh, and at the time, there, our single largest uh, item for sale was Beanie Babies. Uh, and there were people running around, you know, buying and selling these things all over the place. And uh, eBay guys called me and they said, hey, we'd like you to come in and come work with us. We think this is a really exciting thing. And, and you know what? People buy and sell things from each other on trust. You know, people are mailing checks to someone they've never met across the country to get stuff, and it really works. And I, and I looked at them and I said, yeah, I know. And they said, what do you mean you know? And I said, well, I've been selling things on the Internet. And, like, it's really cool. You meet people and... You start talking to them, and you find out things about, you know, their families, and you get in these really weird conversations with people, and, you know, it's just, you know, it's kind of fun, and, and you know, so I get it. And, and they were like, you're not supposed to get it. This is the part where we have to explain it to you. Um, so, you know, it was sort of, it was really, a, for me, a match made in heaven. I, I used to buy and sell comic books and, and coins and stamps, and so I just kind of loved it. It was, it was such a, a great place for me, and... It's rare to get a chance to work somewhere where you really love what you do and, and, you've, and uh, not just your work, but you actually love what the company does. So how many people were at eBay when you got there? It's about God, 70 or 80 then. Uh, today we're about 12,000. So I bet you know all their names, right? Change. Do you know all their names? Uh, I used to. <laughs> I used to. I, it's getting a little harder. We didn't even have name badges back then, right? Now we're big and we're corporate and you have badges to get in the doors and all this stuff, uh, back then you, you knew everybody, right? So following on that, how would you say, if you had to map out the transition of the company, I mean, eight years is a very long time, especially in Internet years. You know, how has the company transformed over that time? Uh, lots of ways. So I, I guess my, my takeaway for those of you thinking about startups is startups really change almost completely every year or two. 
because you know you're doing fairly massive shifts. So you go from 80. We went from 80 people to almost 800 uh, in the first 18 months I was there. And so you went from a small group of people who know each other and know how to get stuff done to committees and lots of new people who have no idea how to do anything. And then you sort of stabilize for a little while. And you start to digest, and people start to feel that, like they know what they're doing. And then you hire 2,000 more people. <laughs> and it sort of starts all over again. And, and so it feels like waves, just like the waves of innovation you know, that go on in the Valley. Companies have these same waves as they, as they go through hypergrowth. And so we've changed organizationally, uh, internally. We've changed in terms of what we do. We used to just uh, be an auction site. Now we sell all sorts of stuff and all sorts of formats through fixed price and classifieds. Uh, when I joined, we said we would never be in the payment business because you know, it sounded messy. And now we run PayPal, which is uh, one of the largest payment processors on the net. Uh, and we always said we were going to be a marketplace. And then we went out and bought Skype last year. So you know we're changing and constantly evolving in what we do as a business as well. And sometimes one drives the other, right? You get in a new business and so your organization changes. And other times your organization changes and all these new people come in with new ideas and they change what the business is. Uh, and it's just been interesting to watch how you know one doesn't automatically follow the other. They they seem to take turns. Well, one of the interesting things about eBay is it's just the dominant force in this online marketplace, uh, especially individual to individual marketplace. And in many other areas of the internet, whether it's search um, or shopping, um, there's so many players. How, how can, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, it's a tough one. If I, I think if I, if I really do the answer, I, I, uh, I would have gone off and done a few more just like it. But uh, <laughs> it, uh, there's something, I, th I think, inherent in an auction that leads to a winner-take-all type of business, where the seller wants to go to the place that has the biggest audience because they get the most bidders and the best prices. And the buyers want to go to where the best selection is because they can get find everything they want. And, and we've really benefited from that. And in fact, if you look at all the businesses eBay are in, that's one of the few things they all have in common is that, like many communication businesses, uh, they have some sort of network effect where the more people who use the service, the more valuable the service is. So PayPal has become the way to pay because everyone uses it. And Skype, really not in the US, but in, in Europe and Asia, is becoming the way people make phone calls. And everyone uses Skype. So if you're going to start doing internet phone calls, Skype's the place you pick because it's the site all your friends have. If you're going to do instant messaging, right? you use Instant Messenger or Yahoo Messenger because they're the place everybody else uses. Uh, so I think we really benefited from that in our auctions. I'm not sure if you think about the larger shopping business that we are, you know, the player. Now, during your time that you've been at eBay, you have spent a significant amount of time opening up new markets around the world. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, I mean, I don't even want to list all the countries because I can't remember them all, but I know they are in Europe, they are in Asia. Yep. And uh, maybe you could tell us about the differences and similarities of doing business in these different areas and maybe some of the challenges in each of them. Sure. Um, yeah, so we, we went from one country in 98 to 35 countries today. Uh, and I helped open up offices in Hong Kong and Singapore and India and Poland and sort of all over the place. And for those of you who haven't gotten a chance to go to school yet abroad, you know, I definitely recommend you know, a semester or a quarter abroad. Um, it's just great to get a chance to see how a different culture 
thinks about things, and uh, you know there, there are definitely differences in behavior. Some cultures have more respect for rules of law, which is important to us uh, because we trade based on trust. Um, but what, one of the things I, I remember saying early on was, you know, this will never work in some countries, right? This eBay idea just won't work because. You know, in Japan, nobody at the time was ever interested in used goods, right? And in Japan, you buy fruit and it's wrapped in cellophane. Each individual apple is wrapped because they want it to be, you know, perfect. Uh, and I had a friend who was Italian who said, this will never work in Italy. And I was like, really, why? And he goes, because no Italian trusts another Italian. <laughs> I was like, okay. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, and, but what we found is that the trading is universal, right? Going to a marketplace, going to barter, you know, by, you know, making a living by selling things. I mean, these are fairly universal human conditions that everyone does, and uh, it just, you know, it just works. So it, it works slightly differently in every country. There are different levels of trust. You know, we use an escrow system in China because people are a little less trusting there. But the core idea of buying and selling is, you know, just really a very human behavior. Well, this all sounds very exciting. So why are you leaving? <laughs> so my sister asked me that. Because uh, I, I have been living in Paris for the last two years, about, a, about 100 feet from the Eiffel Tower. And, uh, you know, she's like, hey, you have this great job, and you work at a really cool company, and you're eating cheese and drinking wine all the time. And why would you leave? Um, you know, and I told I, I was trying to come up with an analogy, and I said, well, you know, it's kind of like I'm on this big aircraft carrier, and I have a, a relatively big business in Europe, several hundred people working for me. But at the end of the day, I have a sale, and I'm sitting on the aircraft carrier, and I'm trying to turn the aircraft carrier. And, you know, it turns little tiny bits every month, but I, I can't really feel the impact, right? I know I'm having a big impact on this big ship, and it is slowly turning, but boy, it just, I don't get that feedback. I don't get the reaction, the, the sort of fun of, of feeling uh, excited about the impact and seeing it that I, that I used to. Uh, and, and I'm going to go to a startup, and, and having now been, been consulting with these guys for a few weeks and, and officially going on board in, in another few weeks, I have to say I still have a sale, but now I'm, ri now I'm riding a skateboard. And it's really <laughs> scary because you're constantly changing. You know, and you may go 90 degrees one way and 90 degrees the other, and you can really feel the change. You do one thing, and the skateboard totally moves. Um, and I, you know, I just I miss that 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 feedback loop and, and the excitement that comes with it. Great answer. We're all going to get on our skateboards <laughs> afterwards. So. Uh, Please, tell us a little bit about Wikia. I spent quite a bit of time last night looking at mm. the site. How many of you have gone to the Wikia site? Not, well, first of all, how many have used Wikipedia? Okay, everyone in the world. Fabulous, great. I, I know that, I know it, start. use it, and my son uses good it all start. the time. How many of you have got, gone to the Wiki, Wikia site? Oh, wow. Okay. More than I would have thought. All right. Great. Well, I spent quite a bunch of time cruising around it last night, and it was very addictive. So tell <laughs> us a little bit about what the company is and where you see it going. So I, I should probably back up and, and start a little with Wikipedia and just uh, explain. So I had dinner with uh, Jimmy Wales, who founded Wikipedia about six weeks ago. And uh, he sat down and, and sort of explained his version of Wikipedia to me. And for those of you who haven't gone under the covers, of Wikipedia, it, it is a top 20 website in almost every country in the world. 
done almost entirely by volunteers. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, okay, so there's lots of volunteers, and then there's this big group of people managing it, and they kind of work together. And I flew down to Tampa, Florida, where their um, office is in a shopping mall, and there were three people there. So Wikipedia is actually run by three people, one of whom is the receptionist. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, this is really virtual. Like, I had no idea. You know, wow. Uh, you know, and they're doing five billion page views a month. And they're, you know, they've built this incredible, really useful content base. And so, you know, I sat down with, with, with Jimmy over dinner and I said, well, you know, what are you trying to do and, and why did you call me? And uh, he said, well, I want to do Wikipedia for everything else. I said, okay, that, that sounds pretty cool. What, you know, what does that mean? And he starts going off and explaining how, you know, people can build travel guides for where to go and where to stay and what to see in every city. And uh, if you go to Wikia now, there's a bunch of Star Trek and Star Wars guides. Uh, we have the Unencyclopedia, which is the guide to the humor about Wikipedia, which is my personal favorite. Um, and there's a guide, a small guide being built right now around pet diabetes and how to care for your cats when they get old and they start having diabetes. I mean, it's anything people care about that is not appropriate for the encyclopedia is what we want to do. You know, to help give people guides and information and a place to come and share and talk about the things they're passionate about. And, you know, we don't care if it's Star Trek or Max or traveling and backpacking or, uh, you know, pet diabetes. I mean, that was a shocker for me. I, I wouldn't have predicted that one would be the first, in the first thousand. Um, the site has grown from about 100 wikis about a year ago to a little over 1,100 today. So we're still in the, you know, 1,000% plus a year growth rate. Um, and, you know, we're trying to turn it into something big. And so that was his speech to me. And, you know, I have to tell you, I was planning on leaving eBay and, and taking a little time off and, and getting a chance to sort of take a deep breath after eight years of, of grinding it out. And I, and I walked away from dinner and called my wife and I said, I think I have to get right back on the, you know, the bicycle and do this again because this is, you know, this is something I feel passionate about. It's something that makes me feel good to, to actually produce information that's useful, open, and, and you know, available to everybody. So what's the business model? Uh, a little bit of we'll see, no. But uh, at its core, the way I would describe our business objectives is if you operate on free software and we're entirely open source, and we contribute to the MediaWiki project, uh, which is the open source project that, that we run off of. If your software is free, and your content is created by volunteers, and people come to you because good content gets ranked well by Google and others, you don't really need to make a lot of revenue to have a nice profitable business. So our goal is to just put some advertising on the site and use that as our, our revenue source um, but the other thing we've said is, if we create good content, we want to share it with the world. So we operate under GFDL, which is a, a free content license. Um, and what that means is, if you like our content, you can take it. You can publish a book about it. You can put it on your website. You can do anything you want. There's no charge. You know, all we ask is that you provide a link back to us or attribution in your book saying where you got it from. Uh, and that's really important to, to Jimmy and I because, again, the, you know, our, real, our mission here is not just creating the best content but making it available to everybody.
in whatever form and fashion they want it. So here you are going from this very big company to the startup. How are you going to leverage your skills? I mean, what skills are you bringing? I'm certainly not interviewing you for the job. You have the job. But uh, you know, wh- where do you see taking your skill set in this new startup company? You know, frankly, I, I almost feel like I have to unlearn skills because uh, I have a lot of big company skills that, that are actually really bad for a startup. So we were talking about the fact that I, we haven't announced yet that I'm, I'm coming on board. Well, I was sort of sitting around going, well, you know, when's somebody going to announce it? And I went, oh, yeah, that's me. <laughs> you know, there's no PR department, right? Um, so I, I'm actually unlearning uh, a lot of skills that I, I had to learn as, as eBay got bigger. Um, but skills I've learned. So community management, I think, is a topic I could spend hours and hours and hours talking about with people. Um, it really is a unique skill. Um, I think uh, my knowledge of sort of global, globalization, where we've opened an offshore, you know, last week we opened an offshore development center in Eastern Europe because I know people there uh, and we're going to build out an engineering team there. Um, and we're, gonna, we're already in um, a bunch of languages and we're going to enable this site to quickly be global. So I think I've learned a lot about global, uh, globalization and how to do it. Uh, I've learned a lot about community management. Uh, I've learned a fair amount about how the internet works. Uh, and a little bit about marketing along the way. I'd say the eBay brand has sort of become a, a decent one, although clearly not, you know, a Mercedes quite yet, but we're trying. Super. So I also know that on the side, in your copious free time, you also do um, a lot of angel investing. So how does that fit in with the other things you're doing, and what sort of things are you interested in in funding? Yeah, so seems to be the hobby du jour in the, in the valley. Uh, I've been an angel investor for about eight years now. And uh, basically, as eBay got bigger, this was my chance to reconnect with startups. Right? And I did it because it was fun, and I got to work on you know, little projects and uh, watch some of them become big. Um, and I, I've done you know, probably 30 or 40 of them over the last eight years. Um, ranging from social networking, uh, LinkedIn being one that maybe some of the students know about, uh, to search, to um, a bunch of community-related stuff. And uh, I don't know that I have, like, uh, you know, a magic answer on angel investing. I, I just, I do it for two reasons. Uh, and for, for what it's worth, this is something I've been doing since school, is I, I like to find areas outside what I'm doing where I can learn skills that I think will be useful for wherever I'm trying to go. So when I was in school, I used to volunteer for to be a leader in various organizations because I wanted to learn leadership skills. I invested in startups because I wanted to learn how to be a startup CEO. And I wanted to learn how to be a board member, and nobody was offering me the chance to be a CEO of a startup or a board member. So I said, well, I'm going to go you know, invest some money and spend my own time on it, and you know, I'll learn. Uh, and so I, I have a, I'm a big believer in if you know where you want to go, you can find ways outside of the primary thing you spend your time on. You know, volunteer work uh, with nonprofits, investing, you name it. There are always ways to gain the skills that you want to get, even if people won't give it to you in your day job. What a fabulous answer. That's, I think you're right on. And in fact, to segue into sort of a separate group of questions about sort of career advice, uh, what do you wish you had learned while you were in school? 
I mean, if you were oh, sitting God. on the other side of this room, you know, what do you wish someone had told you when you were their age? What do you wish your professors had taught you? Yeah. Um, I guess I have two answers. The, the easy answer is I had no idea how much it was about people skills. And not just like I'm a people person and I like working with people, but managing people, working in groups and in teams, the complex you know, dynamics that go with that, the fact that any large group largely, you know, rarely gets to the right answer. They usually get to a pretty good answer and, and finally give up. Uh, my old joke was that a committee is the only animal with 10 stomachs and no brain. Um, and you know, <laughs> big companies have a lot of committees. Um, so I, you, know, I, you know, coming from an engineering background, you know, I'd always go to the math. And I'd say, OK, well, the math will lead me to the right answer. Uh, and what you find in companies is it kind of doesn't. You know, it leads you to what will be close to the answer. Uh, so I guess that's one thing. For those of you going into s startups, I, I guess what I would say is it's amazing how much inertia there is at a startup because you think they're like, like I was saying, you know, you're on the skateboard, you're moving really fast and all that. But there's also lots of stuff that just doesn't get done because nobody gets to it. Uh, and they're too busy or they don't want to. And so I, I'm just... You know, going back in the startup world, I'm reminded again of how important it is to just be able to, to push things forward by force of will. To say, you know, we're going to go take the hill, right? We're going to go do this. And people are like, yeah, I know, I'm busy, I got other stuff. No, we're going to do this. Like, we're going to, you know, we have to make this happen. Uh, and that ability to, to get people energized and to really make them go with you, right? This is, this is leadership versus management. You can tell people what to do. But at a startup, you really have to get them. You got to get the cause going, right? This is our cause. We believe in it. And we have to go do stuff. Uh, and I had no idea about that coming out of school. I thought the stuff just sort of happens. So now I'm going to ask you the hardest question. Uh -oh. Okay, and this is a question that I really think is important for us to share with folks who are just going in, into the workforce. And that is, what are the biggest failures that you've had? And what have you learned from them? And I think the reason is, one could write your story and make it look like a, a long fairy tale of, of successes. But I'm sure that there were some blunders along the way. And it'd be great to know what they were and what you learned from them. Sure. Um, God, there's too many. Where to start? Um, you know, I, it's funny. we. Uh, you know, when you put your resume together, it remind you know, and you, you start thinking about how to highlight all the good stuff you've done. Uh, it reminds me of an old GE saying we used to have that if at first you don't succeed, bury all evidence that you ever tried. <laughs> um, right? you just, I forgot about that, but, uh, but uh, you know, I actually find that the 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 failures are much more helpful for me going forward than than the successes were, because usually the successes were I got lucky. Uh, and the failures are actually where I learned something. Um, so a couple. One is my first year at eBay. We were a startup. It was crazy. Um, and I felt like the more stuff I could get involved in, the more important I would be. So I took on one project. And then I took on a second project. And then I took on a third project. And I was up to, this is on top of my day job, which was taking 12 hours a day. And the five hours a day I was spending interviewing the, the 700 people we hired that year. Um, I'd take on all these projects because that way, you know, I'd be working with all sorts of really interesting people. And in my spare time, I was planning our wedding uh, with my <laughs> wife. And, uh, you know, and I finally, you know, sort of, I hit, 
you know, the, the uh, ignition level where I just sort of launched off the planet and was in just total stress mode. Um, and it was really bad. I mean, I started, I was cranky all the time. I was, um, you know, I was being incredibly rude uh, to people because I'm like, look, I'm busy, you know, I'm doing all this important stuff. And feeling really actually pretty, um, I was pretty depressed that people weren't giving me credit for all this stuff I was doing, right? Like, I'm doing all this stuff. Why aren't they, like, you know, more psyched about what I'm doing? Um, and I eventually basically imploded and, uh, you know, got, I, I, have, I remember the day where I got yelled at by my boss, his boss, the COO, and then the CEO over a six-hour period where I just sat in the conference room and waited for more and more people to come in and yell at me uh, because I had yelled at the, uh, one of the uh, partners at Benchmark, who was our VC, because I thought he was an idiot. Uh, and I realized afterwards I probably shouldn't have said it. Um, so, you know, many lessons out of that one, right? One, one is it's a really small world that we live in, right? It's a really small world. And I keep running into the same people over and over and over again. And, you know, so now I'm like, probably shouldn't have been quite so unpleasant to them. Uh, but, you know, I had an excuse. I was really busy. Um, the other thing I would say is it's actually better to do a few things well than to do a lot of things poorly. And I was definitely doing a lot of things poorly. And, and it turns out most of the other stuff really kind of didn't need to get done anyway. And wasn't that important, but since I was dumb enough to volunteer for it, they'd let me go do it. Um, so, you know, I got a bunch of lessons out of it about how important it is to be respectful of others, uh, how to sort of gauge your own personal stress level. You know, everyone thinks they're invincible and vulnerable and can do everything. Well, you know, at least I haven't been able to do that. Maybe you'll be more successful, but being able to gauge that and, uh, and really manage it. Uh, so I had a new employee in Poland, my uh, employee one at eBay Poland. And the one piece of advice I gave him is I said, you know, Przemek, when you start here, the first few months, you may only be working like four hours a day because there's just only so much stuff to do. Don't freak out and start like chasing all these new projects and doing all these things. Like, go home. And just sort of relax and, you know, you know what, the crazy times will come. You'll get 12 hours a day, but, you know, keep, keep some capacity. Don't overcommit so that when the crazy stuff happens, you actually have the time and the energy and the ability to ramp up and, and you know, pull the all-nighter to pass your exam or to deal with the project problem. Um, you know, and, and uh, so I think, you know, if I learned anything, it was you know, have some breathing time and, and don't overcommit. And, and that makes you a better person. It makes you a better manager. It, uh, frankly, makes me a, a, better, a better husband and parent as well. Um, you know, it's, it, was, it was a real learning for me, and I, I had to get to a pretty ugly place to get there. Fabulous. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> the reason they're laughing is I gave a talk a couple of weeks ago called What I Wish I Knew When I Was 20, uh, and you just went through about half of the 10, <laughs> right? You guys, that you went through. So about, I made all the mistakes? All, no, Excellent. All of the, no, you learned all the same things I did, so it's great. We're, at least we're consistent. So I want to open this up to questions because I'm sure all of you have uh, burning questions for Gil. And what I'm going to ask you, Gil, to do uh, as a favor is to repeat the question uh, for our uh, viewers. Okay. So who's got the first question? Yes. Um, Gil, two questions. 
if I thought there was going to be to raise tens of millions of dollars with a business plan, especially if you were dropping out of Stanford or Harvard Business School. So, um, what is, what's the situation now? Um, do you need to have prototypes? Do you need to have customers? <coughs> Uh, no, but I'll, it's on my wiki, so I can show you how to get to them. Uh, it would be the second one. So, so the, the second question was good restaurants in Paris. Um, the first question was uh, you used to be able to get big valuations in the late 90s from PowerPoint. Uh, what's it like today, and, and you know, what sort of valuations are people getting? Um, and it, it is really interesting. I've talked to a lot of VCs about this lately. There's a big discussion about you know what's changed with Blamp Stack and Web 2.0 and all this stuff. Um, and Josh Koppelman, uh, who's a serial entrepreneur, actually had the best explanation for it that, that I remember, um, which is that essentially, in sort of circa 96, 7, 8, it took 10 million dollars to build a website because you were going to buy Sun servers and you were going to get Oracle and nobody knew how to program in, in any of the, you know, the appropriate languages. And uh, so people sort of by de, de facto, the engineers would go to the investors and say, well, we can't prove it to you. We can show you the PowerPoint and we need $10 million to go make it happen. Um, and today, you know, a, a friend of mine built a website for 50 grand and he did it in his spare time while working, right? So, the, uh, the investment community has sort of figured that out. And, and the net result is that what used to be PowerPoint now can be built so cheaply and so fast that nobody likes PowerPoint anymore, right? They want to see 10,000 users as a proof of concept. They want to see 100,000 users as a sign of traction. Uh, and you know, even angels like me won't invest in PowerPoint anymore. So, you know, those 10,000, 100,000 to me are sort of breakpoints of validation. Uh, valuations are whatever valuations are. Uh, there, there doesn't appear to be any math uh, I can use to predict them. Um, what are some of the steps that you take when you're, obviously you have a lot of global experience, what are some of the steps that you take when you're entering a new global market, especially something you're not familiar with? So the question is steps to take when you're entering a new global market. Um, so I start by assuming I'm not nearly as smart as I think I am and talk to people who actually live there. Um, and in particular, having done it for a while now, I'm now aware of some things to ask questions about and to worry about. Those are, at least in, in the technology and internet sector, stuff like privacy laws, which can be radically different by country. The Germans are incredibly worried about privacy. <laughs> As best I can tell, you know, the, the Chinese government is really worried about content. Uh, you know, uh, they've actually blocked Wikipedia uh, as of a few weeks ago. So, um, so knowing, you know, knowing the right questions to ask around, what are things like that to be worried about? Um, you know, in terms of legal or regulatory, um, are, are a big part of it. And then I think there's the cultural aspect of just how do people use these things, and different people have completely different perspectives on how things should be used. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. I mean, I, I go to the supermarket in France, and the supermarket has you know, wine, because that's perfectly normal there, but it's not perfectly normal here. So you know, we have wine sales on eBay France, but we don't in the US. Uh, so 
cultural mores, how people behave. But you know, I just get out and I talk to people who are in whatever sector I'm going to go to, and I say, you know, if I was a dumb American coming over to France, you know, what are the five things I'd need to know? And people in your industry will also know. So you know, I'll talk to somebody else. You know, I'm looking at travel as an area for guides. So I called up uh, a travel site and I said, hey, what do you guys do? And what should I watch out for? I, so I, if anything, you know, my answer is go talk to smart people and, and try to become a little smarter. Yeah, so the question was when you're opening a new office in a new country, sort of what are the first five steps or something like that? Yeah, and I go back to, you know, a little bit of the same answer. I start by talking to some people from there. So, you know, I opened offices in Poland, Singapore, Hong Kong, a few other places. Uh, and I started by calling up people I know from school who are Singaporean and Polish and going, okay, you know, what's it like over there? What should I do? You know, what, what should I worry about? Sort of step one. Step two is I actually go in and meet with the government. Uh, so I met with the Singaporean government. I, I met with the Polish government. Every government has an office for foreign investment who would love to talk to you because you're going to bring them jobs and you know, a factory or an office or whatever. So they love to talk to you, and they have all the answers to most of your questions. Uh, and in particular with eBay, because we didn't put factories down, I had this really cool opportunity because I would go into them and I'd say, hey, I'm the only guy you're going to meet this month who doesn't want a subsidy. I don't want you know, a land subsidy. I don't want a labor subsidy because you know, we're going to hire like four people. What's the point? Um, <laughs> you know, I'd love two things from you. I'd love advice, you, know, to, you to be able to pick up the phone or answer my emails when I have dumb questions. Um, and I'd love for you to help me figure out who in government to talk to over time to explain to them that we're good and not bad. Right, and sort of establish up front that we're actually good people, and you know, because in our case, we do have a lot of regulatory issues. Uh, you know, in China, you can't sell, not China, in India, you can't sell tiger skins, right? In the US, you can't sell wine. In Germany, you can't sell Nazi stuff. Uh, you know, every country has their own sort of issues, uh, and we inevitably get yelled at for it. Uh, and so, one of the things we really do is we try to go in and say proactively to the right people, hey, like, we're good and, and we want to work with you and we're available. Uh, so, I, I love the foreign government uh, offices that help with that, and every country has one. Um, and then I go hire one person who's from there because they're the ones that actually have the credibility to get stuff done, and I'm just the ugly American. That'd probably be my, my three things I start you know, in every country. And I guess if I had one more, I go and I read a lot of macro data. So there's the CIA fact book, World Bank data. Uh, you can get a lot of data about technology, population, income, stuff like that from a variety of public sources, which is fabulous when you're trying to decide which country to go to. Standard answer. Give us a question here. So the question is, what, what facts or, or skills, I guess? Yep. 
that I, I learned either in engineering school or, or in business school. Um, so I, I've been lucky in one sense in that I always knew I wanted to go run something um, and with a little bit of a technology bent. So I've been able to sort of plan ahead because of that. So in engineering school, I mean, frankly, I, I learned how to think and how to you know, do problems uh, and answer problems. Um, you know, IE is probably not quite as technically challenging as, as some of the other majors, but you know, I learned a lot of computer programming, which was really useful. You know, I, I, I didn't actually find it very helpful in terms of running business, but it's great in terms of helping you think and structure problems and, uh, you know, and, and try to get the logical answers. Uh, you know, consulting is another great sort of way to get some experience doing that. Um, you know, the other thing I did, frankly, both in undergrad and business school, was I started businesses, uh, both of which sort of helped me see the other side of it. Uh, business school, um, so it's interesting, when I, was, when I got accepted to business school, I asked the same question one of you did, which was, you know, what do you wish you had learned, you know, 10 years out to some of the people I knew at GE? And to a person, every single one of them said, I should have learned more about organizational behavior and managing people and da 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 Like literally, it was, it, was, it was like a textbook answer from 10 people in a row at GE. And I was like, oh, okay, so I should probably major in that. Uh, and I have to say, I took all the classes, and all it taught me was what questions to ask, not necessarily any of the good answers. Uh, I think you learn the answers by experience, and uh, the best proof I have of that is when they had an interview preparation class in business school, and they you know, sort of prep you for being a good interviewer. And the one thing they said is, never cross your legs in an interview, because when you do, your leg will fall asleep, and when you stand up, you'll fall down. <laughs> and I went, well, that's really good advice. You know, obviously I'm not going to cross my legs. And I went in and proceeded to have my leg fall asleep in an interview. Uh, and I, you know, so my takeaway is you can learn things in a variety of medium, classes, books, anecdotes from friends. But until you've actually been kicked in the butt a couple of times, it doesn't really sink in. Uh, so, you know, when I go back to this questions list, right, I know all the questions to answer, to ask now. But you know, even sometimes when I get the answer, I still don't actually get the answer, right? Until I've been, until I've made a few mistakes. Uh, first of all, I'm Italian, so I forgive you. Molto bene, grazie. I have two questions. The first question is: Do you think you're going to miss the large company in terms of you know, environment opportunities, etc., etc.? And second, more specifically about the new business. How many, what makes, makes you think that people will freely contribute to your guys? Because, you know, I may have a, a special, my favorite restaurant in Tuscany, I don't want to disclose to anybody but friends. Yeah. So two questions. Uh, the first was, are you going to miss the big company? And uh, to which the answer is, heck no. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, I've worked at GE, which was 300,000 people. Uh, and run my own business a couple of times. And I have to say, some of the trappings of a big company are very sexy, right? I have an administrative assistant. I fly in business class. You know, these are sort of sexy things. But being, being able to actually have an impact and being energized about what you're doing and not having to go to a bunch of committee meetings is a heck of a lot more fun than, than flying business class. Uh, so I'll, I'm, I'm, all, you know, I'm back in coach for a while, and you know, I'm okay with that. Um, I do miss the admin. That would have been nice. Um, and, and the second is, why would people contribute to Wikia? And, and I think it, 
it again, much like with eBay, it goes back to this question of the basic human condition. Everyone wants to be an expert about something. You know, anytime you go to a party or you sit out with, sit out with friends, you tend to talk about the stuff you care about and you tend to view yourself as an expert on it and given a chance to publish, whether on a blog or in a wiki, about stuff you love, you do. Just because, you know, it's stuff you're passionate about. And what, what's great with this wiki uh, system that we have is you don't just blog, you actually contribute in a group fashion. And what you find is you write stuff and then other people write stuff and you sit there going, hey, I didn't know that. Like, that's kind of cool. So, you know, I put in my restaurant recommendations in Paris and then some other expat says, no, 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 these places are crap. You should go to this place. And I'm like, oh, that'd be nice to know. Um, and I, I see that happen. And yes, there are people who don't want to share and that's fine. There are more than enough people in the world who do. Uh, and the validation of other people who are equally passionate about restaurants in Italy saying, yeah, you're right, and you have good taste, is, is very powerful to people. Um, so I opened a frequent flyer wiki uh, with all my tips and tricks for how to get miles and which credit cards to use, and people started adding tricks that I didn't know, and I was like, this is great. You know, I don't have to do any more research. I can now just you know, go back to this wiki every week and you know, find the next credit card I should be applying for. Uh, so I'm doing it for a selfish reason, which is I think if I publish enough information about something I care about, other people will find it and they'll add to it. You know, and and uh, you know the topic didn't really come up, but the one of the things that really struck me when I listened to Jimmy talk about Wikipedia and now Wikia is, you know, the internet and the blogging. A lot of it is really very vocal, nasty discourse. Uh, you know, and a lot of the politics in Washington now is very sort of unhealthy and destructive conversations. And because these these wikis are editable by anybody, if people don't like what you say, they can delete it with one click of a button. And what Jimmy's found that I, I really loved, and it was part of what made me go, yeah, I got to do this, um, was it's, it actually enforces a civil conversation about a topic lots of people are passionate about. It makes people behave because if they are rude or they're too aggressive or they think you know, they're inflexible about their opinion and they just spew their opinion out there on the wiki, somebody else comes along and deletes it. And you see that all day long where people are you know, essentially being trained and taught by other volunteers in the community that you know, this is not a place for you to just come in and blab. You go to your blog and you can say anything you want there. You know, if you want to come in and contribute and work with us on something that we are all passionate about, this is your place. If you want to just rant about whatever you think is important, there are other places to do that. Uh, you know, and Piero Midiar is one of the, the investors with me uh, in Wikia, and, and I, I really you know, I, I have deep admiration for this guy because that, that was the reason he invested. Is, you know, the idea of creating community is not a place where people sit around and chat on a chat board. It's about bringing people together around things that they're passionate about and forming friendships and relationships and, and giving people you know, some meaning. Uh, and and you know, I, I had this conversation with, with uh, Pierre and I've had it with Jimmy and, and I just walked away going, you know, I, this is just a good mission, right? It's a good thing to do, and, and 
I have something to contribute, and you know, and I seeking some validation and doing it. Great. Several questions for okay. We'll do one, two, three. Yeah. Um, as an annual investor, how do you find entrepreneurs to invest in? Do they have to be referred to you, or do you just go find them? And when you do find them, how do you invest in them individually, or do you have to have an institutional investor to invest with you? So the question was, how do I find entrepreneurs, and then when I do, you know, what does it take to invest in them, essentially? Uh, and it's funny, right? I've been doing it for eight years, and when I started, um, I just got married, and I sat down with my wife, and I said, Sue, I'm planning to go lose a lot of money. And she said, well, that sounds dumb. <laughs> I said, well, here's why. You know, I want to go do this angel investing thing. And I know that because I don't know anything about it and I've never been an investor before, I'm probably going to suck, right? And I'm going to suck on several dimensions. Um, <laughs> I'm going to have bad judgment because I don't really know what's good and bad. I don't have a good network of people to refer stuff to me, so I'm probably going to get really crappy deals. Um, and I don't even have a good sense of smell for like how this should work and what valuations are and any of that stuff. So you pretty much assume the first five or 10 are just going to be flushed down the toilet. She's like, great, fabulous. Um, and I proceeded to do that. Uh, and what I found is as true with anything, the more time you spend doing something, the better you get at it and the bigger your network gets and the more skill you gain. Uh, and so I progressed from really, really bad deals to sort of smelly deals to okay deals. Uh, I now get more and more referrals to the point where I probably won't talk to people if they don't know somebody I know because I get so many from the people I do know and trust that I don't, you know, I don't need to take uh, 100 cold calls, although that may change because there was a journal article mentioning me yesterday and the spam level has gone up a lot in my LinkedIn mailbox. Um, and I, I will answer those. Um, so I, I do now take it primarily through people I know and in fact I'm part of a, a sort of modest network of angels like uh, Reed Hoffman, the LinkedIn founder, and Mark Andreessen, and Josh Koppelman, and Mark Pinkus, who are all in the same milieu of Web 2.0 and consumer internet investing. We all look at pretty much the same stuff. Uh, so today, it's much more, okay, somebody I know and trusts likes this guy and knows him and, or knows this, per this woman and thinks she's great. Uh, in terms of investing, no, absolutely not. In, in fact, angels prefer not to have venture money. Uh, we want to be the first money in, uh, and we'd much rather, you know, keep the VCs out and 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 uh, give you enough money to to get going. And I have seen, uh, it's a sense of, it feels more like '98 to me than '99, but the bubble is coming, uh, and I can tell because. 18 months ago, I would do an angel round and we'd raise $100,000 from a group of people for a million dollar valuation. Uh, and a few months ago, I invested in a $3 million angel round. Uh, and I called up the guy who I know um, and I said, hey, you know, $3 million, that's like a lot of money. Uh, who set the valuation on this thing? And he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, who's leading it? Who's the VC or whatever? And he goes, yeah, there's no VC. I said, well, how'd you decide on 15 million pre and 18 million post? He goes, I don't know. That's what people are willing to bear. I was like, all right, I'm in. <laughs> I, there's no science to this, you know. I like him. It's a good idea. 
He's got you know, today. Yeah, yeah, no. no, but I have a PayPal account, so I can email you. But, but uh, no, but you know, again, right? This is, I think, what's different this time around, especially for the angels, is um, there are a lot of been there, done that people, you know. And so this guy Jason, he had been COO and then CEO of a fairly significant publicly traded internet company, and he was going off to do another internet company. I'm like, okay, you know. Execution risk equals zero. I know Jason. You know the big question is, you know, is is it, you know, is he going to work or not? Like, are consumers going to get excited about it or just sort of excited? And I can't predict that. But a lot of the risk has been taken out, and you're seeing more and more of that now, where you find these serial entrepreneurs that have taken companies public, sold them for a lot of money, uh, putting their own money in, getting things started, and asking people they know and like to join with them, and that is. A much lower risk profile, and so that's how you justify, you know, an eight-figure valuation for a piece of PowerPoint. Is you go, well, okay, you know, it's Jason. I mean, Wikia got founded, you know, with four million dollars, with you know, essentially no business plan. I was like, well, it's Jimmy Wales. He did Wikipedia. He wants to do another one. I get it, right? You know, uh, what else can I? Can you really tell me that's going to change my opinion? Question there. I don't. Uh, I don't prevent. The question was, how do you prevent people from mutilating? Uh, yeah, they, so I guess the Wikipedians call it graffiti. Uh, and the answer is they don't. Anybody can graffiti anything they want to. Uh, and I had lunch today with a, a woman who works in, in uh, city government, and she had this great comment for me about physical graffiti. She said, cities you know, have been benchmarking around physical graffiti in you know, New York City, where there's tons of graffiti, and lots of other places. And they found the one single thing that was most effective at stopping real graffiti in cities was a 800 number to report it and a 24-hour takedown policy of, if we hear about it on the phone, we're going to run out there and you know, sandblast it off. And it turns out that if you don't give people the validation for their work, if you make them realize that what they're doing is futile because you're going to come clean it off right away, they eventually get bummed out and leave. Um, and that's essentially what's, what we've seen on Wikipedia and on Wikia, which is people watch the content. You can do whatever you want to. They can come back and wipe off whatever you did. Uh, and the community polices it. And the more people watching the page, the faster it gets cleaned up. Uh, and there were some stats going around in the media about this with you know, the George Bush page getting you know, completely deleted and replaced with George Bush sucks. Uh, you know, and and I, I don't quote me on this, but I, I seem to remember the, the quote they gave the media was something like, it gets fixed on average in less than 60 seconds. Because the next person comes to the page and he goes, that isn't right. You know, like, I'm upset about that, or I just think it's silly, and they go in and they flip it back. And you can one-click revert any change that's been made. I did notice when I was looking at the Wikia site that there was a internal site that was sort of a spam on of itself, where you could, like, the un-Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. It was very funny. Un-encyclopedia. Yeah, un-encyclopedia. Yeah, it's in about ten languages now, and it's Wikipedians making fun of themselves and everything else. Uh, it's a great joke site and uh, good humor if you need something to read in the morning. Sort of a nice place to sort of put your graffiti. Yeah, yeah. What do you think would be a good point of entry for someone that has 
So if I, if I heard the question right, it's what's the right entree to reach angels if you don't know angels? Uh, you know, I... You know, in today's... Well, are you, are you talking about it within sort of Internet consumer or more broadly? Okay, so, I mean, within Internet consumer, my general answer is just go build it and get the usual suspects of bloggers to write about it, you know, TechCrunch and the rest of that crew, and people will start calling you. Because uh, VCs are getting pretty aggressive, and they've realized that by the time the angels are done jacking up the valuation, uh, they're paying a lot for these companies by the time they get traction. And they're starting to go out and cold call small startups. Um, I've cold called people uh, where I go, hey, that's cool. Um, so that's the easiest way. Uh, and the other is, you know, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. Feel free to link to me. And uh, if you find somebody you want to reach out to through me, I'd be happy to pass it on. Great. Any other questions? Last question. <laughs> on a personal level, like, what things do you do or have or focus on that you would attribute your success to? <sighs> yeah, pretty much luck. <laughs> Other than luck? Uh, so the question is, what, what do I attribute my success to? I pretty much go with luck. Um, you know, it's, and I, I, I guess what I would say is luck is a combination of good timing and some preparation. Best way to get hit by lightning is to walk around in the rain with an umbrella. Um, you know, it increases your chances. Uh, so, you know, if I look back and I, and I ask myself, you know, why have I been able to get to where I wanted to go? You know, I put it down to a few things. One is I have consistently had a 10-year plan. You know, I went to college in engineering because it was the path I wanted to use to get to running a company. So the, the more you can sort of figure out where you want to go longer term, boy, the easier it is to get there because you can, you know, build the map and assess risks and look at options and, and you know, build skills that will be relevant to what you're wanting to do. That's a flip answer because it's not always easy to predict what you want to do 10 years from now. I, I was lucky or perhaps way too focused uh, in that regard. Uh, and the other one, you know, I really do believe uh, Steve Wesley, who's running for governor, was my, my first boss at eBay. Uh, and he taught me that having a lot of friends sure helps. Um, and, and I'm a real believer in the more relationships you have, the more friends you have, the more people there are rooting for you, you know, to help you get where you want to go. Um, so I, I, you know, the reason I invested in LinkedIn was I, I felt I've tried to become a node, right, in the network of various things in the valley that I care about, uh, you know, and it's a way for me to, to help people and in turn, you know, gain value from that. And, you know, there's the old movie, you know, Pay It Forward. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in that. You go out and you help people, and it eventually comes back in some fashion or other. And it's, it's amazing the serendipity of it, because it never happens the way you would predict. But having a lot of people rooting for you sure helps. Well, I have to tell you, I know that I think that we turned a pretty big problem into an amazing opportunity. And I certainly hope all of you agree. So let's just thank Gil for thank his you. Thank you.